Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome to the 2019 Solar Oration, which won't be just about solar. Um, but before we go to the oration, I'd like to introduce the um, Minister for Environment and several other things in the ACT, um, Mr. Shane Rattenbury, who will say a few words. Well, thank you, Andrew, and good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to join you here. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this area and the long and enduring history they have in connection to this region. It's always great to come along to the ANU Solar Oration. I learn something new every year, and I'm sure you will all learn some terrific things tonight uh, once the speech gets underway. I was asked to update you on the ACT's progress to 100% renewable electricity. Let me start by assuring you we are on track and we will maintain it. That's the... Short version of the answer. Uh, As you probably know, the reverse auctions were very successful, not only in securing the lowest prices ever seen for renewable electricity at the time the contracts were struck, but also in leveraging more than $2 billion of investment into 10 large-scale renewable energy projects around Australia and more than $500 million of investments directly into the ACT over the life of the contracts. And so that has helped develop the industry here in the ACT And again, as many of you will know in the audience, we now have a number of companies with their headquarters here in the ACT, uh, significant innovation going on over at the hub. And I think the ACT has really earned a reputation as being a centre of excellence when it comes to renewable electricity. Uh, The scheme is also providing good value for money for electricity users. In 2017-18, households paid on average only $42.20 for the scheme, so well under a dollar a week. Now, that was before the scheme got to fully to 100%, but you can see that it's really proved to be very cost-effective. The scheme is also designed so that when wholesale prices are high, renewable energy generators return the difference, uh, which is then reduced from consumers' future bills. And that brings us to the graph, which you've now had some minutes to sneak preview on the screen. Uh, But this happened for the first time last summer, and you can see uh, the section where there's the sharp orange dip high electricity demand and coal power plant failures caused by the extreme temperatures pushed up wholesale electricity prices. And so this meant that the net cost of the ACT's renewable contracts to ACT consumers dropped below $0 for the whole quarter. As a result, around $4.3 million was returned to ACT consumers between January and March this year. And that will then come off future ACT electricity bills. So it shows the way the scheme was designed. Yeah, thank you. I think it underlines the real success of the way the scheme was designed to try and, I guess, minimise the cost to consumers and ensure that the scheme is cost-effective over time. Uh, The renewable electricity industry has changed significantly since 2014, and this is demonstrated by my second graph. Thank you. Uh, which shows the cost per megawatt hour of renewable electricity achieved under the scheme, which has fallen dramatically with changing wholesale prices 
and generation with lower feed-in tariffs coming online. Uh, so this graph shows just how competitive renewable electricity generation has become. And there's plenty of other places you can see this sort of data in terms of various reports around the place of the falling cost per megawatt hour. But this is certainly the ACT experience. Again, you can see the little dip there is where uh, it's been below zero for us because of the contract for difference process. Um, the other graphs that you might have seen, I know he's in the audience tonight, so I don't want to embarrass him, but Dave Osman has done some terrific analysis of uh, the amount of electricity the ACT is actually generating for itself over time and the comparison versus uh, energy usage. And so if you're really into that stuff and uh, like a graph and some numbers, I'd encourage you to have a look at Dave's work as well. Uh, we recently passed legislation in the Assembly to change the renewable electricity target legislation because in one of the quirks of the legislation, it required that we have 100% renewable electricity by 2020 and it was silent after that. So we decided it was probably worth changing the legislation to ensure that that continued in perpetuity rather than just sort of letting it slide sometime after 2020. Uh, so that legislation has now been ch changed. The other thing that we've done is to maintain that 100% target with two things going on, particularly population growth, uh, but also increased electrification from electric vehicles and people moving from gas to electricity. And thirdly, with some issues of constraint in the market, we needed to make sure that we had enough electricity going forward. So we've re just released another reverse auction uh, to procure another 200 megawatts uh, of power. So that auction commenced on the 15th of November and will conclude in early 2020. And that'll ensure that we continue that 100% target, but also to continue innovation. That auction includes the ACT's first large-scale battery, uh, which uh, is a requirement under the, under the auction and also a continued financial contribution to enable us to uh, continue to invest in the Renewable Energy Innovation Fund and the like. Uh, and so we believe that that will... Yep, thank you. That, that will continue to facilitate things like the Renewables Hub and where we've seen some real innovation and some real entrepreneurship here in the ACT and the building of that reputation. Uh, so, as I said, we'll achieve that 100% target on and from the 1st of January. All the generators are now in place, uh, but again, for people who appreciate accounting rules and technical details, uh, it actually kicks in from the 1st of January. The challenge lies ahead of us now, and some of you will have seen me present the new climate strategy, but once that 100% kicks in, Transport and gas are our two big issues. Transport will be 62% of our emissions going forward. Gas is another 22%. And so you'll see a real focus on that as being where the ACT needs to go next. Uh, one of the parts of the new strategy is actually a sustainable energy policy because we need to think about some of the things that are happening specifically in energy policy space around uh, the changing energy market, how we deal with those issues of the gas transition, but also as... For example, more, elect more electric vehicles come in and the vehicle-to-grid possibilities open up. How do we manage the network in the ACT? What does that future network look like? Uh, as we transition gas out of the system, how does the grid cope with those changing electricity demands and the like? So that policy is due out in the first half of next year and I think we'll really set a plan for the ACT to continue to step boldly into the future in the energy sector to continue to lead by example and make sure that we are making the innovations we need to to become a truly zero emissions jurisdiction. Uh, innovation is important and that's what the next part of the evening is about. We now get to the Solar Thesis Prize which recognise excellence in solar research 
and I'd like to invite Andrew back, who's going to announce the successful winner of that competition. Thanks very much for the chance to update you. Thanks very much, Minister. And uh, that just matter-of-fact um, talk, you know, we just go and do 100% renewables, then we'll go and do transport and heating. That's what we need at the national level. It doesn't sound very hard, does it? <laughs> Especially because everyone can just follow what the ACT's already done. So I'd like to um, invite Yi Yang up onto the stage. She is the, um, the winner of the Solar Thesis Prize for this year. And um, she will be receiving a cheque for $1,000 from the minister. And uh, congratulations. And if you'd like to... Thank you very much. I really appreciate the committee gave me uh, this prize. And I also want to thank my supervisor panels, Prof um, Dr. John Pai, Dr. Joe Coventry, and uh, Professor Lipinski. And uh, also want to thank my colleagues in uh, Solar Thermal Group. And uh, thank you very much. Well, well done indeed. And of course, it's um, the younger people who are going to have to do the heavy lifting in other areas besides electricity in order to really decarbonise the global energy system. So now we come to the main event of the evening, and um, this will be given by uh, Fleur Yaxley. So uh, I'm not going to introduce Fleur. She's going to introduce herself by way of a story, she tells me. But um, we look forward very much to, um, to hear what she has to say. Thank you, Fleur. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's lovely to be here in Canberra this evening, especially as the ACT government has done such a lot over the years to support our industry through its auction process. Before I start my story tonight, given that we are in Canberra, the home of our federal parliament, I thought I would bring something with me tonight. In the same way that our Prime Minister earlier this year brought a lovely lump of coal into Parliament. Here it is. As I had to describe to the security at the airport this morning, this is a wind turbine. Now, today we make these at about 12 megawatt machines. They buy back their embedded energy in a couple of months. They produce the cheapest new form of energy that we have available to us. And now, we can produce energy with our wind turbines at a rate that is lower than the marginal cost of coal in some markets. 
I'll pass this around for show and tell a little bit later on, as long as you promise not to use it as a weapon. Now tonight, I'm going to tell you the story of how we've reached this point where the levelised cost of energy of renewables is the lowest that we've got available to us. But before I do that, I want you to think. I'm interested in whether or not you are optimistic about whether we can make the transition to a clean, renewable energy society. Are you optimistic that we can decarbonise our electricity infrastructure? And I'll ask you that question again at the end. Because when I had to think about what the purpose of being here tonight was, I thought, well, maybe the best thing that I can give you is a bit more drive by telling you the story of what we've done this century. Maybe it'll make you pick up the phone and make one more phone call. Maybe it'll make people sit there for a few extra hours and work through a problem. Because so far we've managed to achieve remarkable things. And we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us. If we cooperate and work together, we'll be able to overcome them. And we'll be able to produ produce a world that is worth living in. A better world for our children. So tonight, I'm going to tell you a story about great ingenuity, about resilience, about an industry that has overcome all sorts of political garbage and prevailed. And ultimately, I think it's a great story of passion because the people who work in renewable energy are passionate. They wake up every morning and they know that what they're doing is creating a better world. And we should be encouraging our children to follow jobs like that, to become engineers, to be involved in policy that makes the world a better place. So this year has been quite momentous. In November, for the first time, we had more than 50% of Australia's energy coming from renewables. That's quite remarkable. And when you think about how little renewable energy we had installed around the globe, just in 2001, 2002. That rise has been absolutely astronomical. We didn't really even talk about solar until some time through here. And look at that growth. Now to tell the story, I'm gonna take you back in time. 
back to 2002. And there's a reason it's 2002. 2002 was the first year that the mandatory renewable energy target was in place in Australia. It was a year I came home. I'd been working in the Middle East with the UNDP and we were about to embark on the Second Iraq War. Interestingly, it's um, linked through to what we see now because the biggest protests we've seen on the streets of Australia were at that time against the Iraq War and now we're seeing those size protests again to do with climate. There was only 70 megawatts of wind installed in Australia at that time and there were quite a lot of small projects. And I was 27 and I came back to Australia to project manage the construction of what was the largest wind farm in the Southern Hemisphere, Chalicum Hills Wind Farm. It was also the first non-recourse project financed wind farm in Australia. Now let me tell you, financing a wind farm for the first time was quite a difficult proposition. And there were all types of risks that we had to describe to banks and prove that we had taken out of the equation. We pioneered all sorts of construction techniques. They used rock anchor foundations for the first time. It was the first time they'd ever been used anywhere in the world. And the idea of these foundations was that you could put a small amount of concrete in because we were trying to reduce the amount of carbon that we had and reduce the amount of materials we used and we tied them into the rock substrate. We hadn't built anything like these, this size of wind farm before and we had to work out how we were going to remove all this formwork from each of the foundations. All sorts of different technical challenges. And this project was only possible at this stage because it was supported through that Emirates scheme. Today, we could build this without any subsidy. So, Chalicum Hills was a mere 52 megawatts. That doesn't seem very big at all today. Um, there were 35 wind turbines. Um, and that little NM64, so they were um, NEG Micon machines. That company has now been bought out by Vestas. The 64 talks about the rotor diameter of the machine, so this distance. And they were 1.5 megawatts. Now, I'll talk to you a little bit about the Emirates scheme. I know a lot of you are involved in policy, so you might already know a lot more about this than I even I do. But the Emirates scheme came in in 2001. Um, it only had a 2% target. It was very low. And unfortunately, 
the 2% target was against a base year. And that base year, there wasn't very much hydro produced in Australia. So by the time we finished Chalicum Hills in 2003, that MRET target was basically full because hydro was able to eat it all up. So we didn't really get great growth in renewables through the MRET scheme. It was moved a couple of times over, it, over its life, 20%, um, in 2009, and then it was split into the LRET scheme, so large renewable energy scheme, small renewable energy scheme later on, as we had rooftop solar start to make a big impact. There were lots of other schemes that came in. There was um, a Victorian version of the MRAT, which came in for a little while, and the South Australian version of the same scheme, which helped to boost up, um, because the state governments could see that was what was there on the federal scheme wasn't enough to support us. And then there were the auctions. Now, the auctions have been excellent, because the auctions have definitely made sure that the lowest cost projects or the best projects go ahead. The only problem with the auctions is that they do tend to be regionally specific. So if you're in Victoria, you want the best projects to happen in Victoria to support jobs in Victoria, um, similarly with the ACT. But as a scheme, which actually works really well for promoting the best low-cost projects, the auctions have been excellent. And then, of course, we have the CEFC, um, who have also been really instrumental in bringing in finance for new initiatives that we're bringing in place and ARENA. Now, before I embark much more on the story, I need to sort of take you back a little bit, um, probably to um, you know, first year studies at uni, and give you a little bit of background about what we do when we finance a project and a little bit of a lesson on physics. So I'll start with um, what happens when we project finance a wind farm. So, the whole idea of project financing is that you can have fixed costs and a fixed revenue stream, and then there's very little risk there for equity in the banks to put forward their funds. So with a project, when we build it, we have its capex. Um, the most wind farms are EPC contracts, so engineering, procure, construct, they're a turnkey agreement. And what happens is the OEM, the um, turbine manufacturer, normally steps up and says, right, okay, I'll deliver you a wind farm. It'll work. This is its power curve for the turbines. Um, this is its availability, and here's a fixed cost. So the idea is that that that's a little bit of fixed. And you might have, maybe you put 5% on that just in case a few things go wrong or something always goes wrong. And then you also have your OPEX. So with a wind farm now, we have 25 year operation and maintenance agreements. So the wind turbine manufacturers will come in and they'll say, right, for 25 years, I'm gonna operate this wind farm for you. I guarantee you that it will be available 99% of the time and this is the cost. 
So that's our cost base. And then the other side of the equation is the revenue. So most importantly, we have the generation, how much energy are we creating that we've got to sell. Then we've got the losses. So this is where, though we didn't actually talk about it much today, but it has been a lot of discussion around um, MLF in the market, what's happening with our um, with changes of MLF, which basically comes in and it's a, a factor which reduces your generation, and also price. Now, the next little thing I need to talk to you about is taking you back to physics and how we actually generate power from a wind turbine. So, the amount of energy that we make from a wind turbine is related to the wind speed. So, if you're in a windy spot, you're actually, the, the velocity of the wind is multiplied by a factor of three, so the cube of the wind speed. So, it's really important to be in a windy location. And then we look at the area, the swept area of the wind turbine. Um, and if you remember back to your maths, there we've got the pi r squared equation. So the swept area and the velocity tell us how much energy we're going to get out of our wind turbine. And then that gives you this little thing over here, which is a power curve. So this is the power curve for the energy micron machine that we had at Chalicum Hills. So the turbines at Chalicum Hills had a 68 metre hub height. That's quite low. Now we're building our machines at 120 metres. 140 metres. How high are we going to go, boys? <laughs> Depending on where you are and your tip height restrictions. As you go up, the wind speed goes up um, in most sites. The cut-in wind speed, which is when the turbine starts generating, was at four metres per second. So until we got to a certain wind speed, we weren't generating much electricity at all. And from those 35 turbines, we could power 26,000 homes. So now I'm going to talk about what's happened since then and how we've got to the point where we are today. So on this slide, you can see what's happened to rotor diameters over time. Back here is the Chalicum Hills era in 2002. As time went on, we managed to introduce lighter materials into our turbine design and take cost out. So by the time we're putting in turbines today, we're up at around a rotor diameter of 158 metres or above. These figures are based off the GE platforms in Australia. It varies for different turbine manufacturers, but they've all followed the same sort of curve. 
And where are we going to go to next? Well, offshore, we're seeing rotors of about 220 metres now. Now, the onshore turbines tend to follow the offshore machines. Um, the offshore machines are more expensive, and what we do in the industry is um, sometimes we develop technology for that market, and then we manage to get cost out of it, and it comes back onto the onshore machines. This is the Vesta's change in machines at the same time. So, as you can see, very much the same story. So, as the OEMs developed their turbine platforms, they tend to hold some things constant and change others. And the reason we do this is because incremental change makes things much easier for people to finance and for people to understand. So, with most of the change of technology with wind, what we've actually changed are the lengths of the blades and the makeup of the blades, the bolts that go around the way the blade connects into the hub, which is this bit, the gearbox ratios themselves, as you can imagine, a much longer blade requires a different type of gearbox, and the towers. So there's much greater load on a tower, but we've actually managed to make the steel in the towers a little bit thinner as we've gone up as well. And that's because we've understood more about the loads and the dynamics that are actually occurring on these turbines as we've had information come back from them over time. Now, the capacity of the machines has changed much the same way that the blades have and stepped up over time. Again, this is um, looking at the GE platforms. I should probably say here that I worked for GE for about six years, so I've got access to some of their information and they've helped me put these slides together. Um, so we see not so much change in that period from 2001 to 2011, and then we see an absolutely massive change over the last 10 years in the capacity of the machines and the rotor diameter. And it's those two things together, whilst holding costs low, that have made a lot of change in the levelised cost of energy. The other thing that's happened is that we've been manufacturing more wind turbines. And that, and the movement of that manufacturing has created benefits in itself. So we've come out of a small um, specialised production base into more of a, um, I guess, an aircraft style of manufacturing. And now we're moving into something which is more like a motor car manufacturing business. Actually, the new head of um, the Asian region for GE comes from a car manufacturing background. 
We've also moved the places that we manufacture these turbines. So when we were buying the turbines for Chalicum Hills, they were all being manufactured in Germany, including those huge blades and shipped all the way across the world to Australia. Now there's a lot more manufacturing in Asia. We could have been manufacturing turbines in Australia if right back in 2001 we'd had a bit more of a market and a bit more of a, a policy to support us. Um, NEG Micon actually offered to set up a blade manufacturing plant off the back of Chalicum Hills in Victoria. But unfortunately, because we'd built out that RET and the market went under, that didn't occur. There have been some other manufacturing plants built across the years. Um, Vestas had a plant in Tasmania um, that I think bolted hubs or nacelles together at some stage as well. But again, because there wasn't the throughport, those manufacturing facilities left us. So, Overall, if you looked at the change in the GE platforms that they've offered in Australia this century, there's a 495% increase in the generation that we're getting out of those wind turbines. So 116% improvement in the first 10 years and then 175. That's absolutely astronomical. So how did we do this? We were using lighter, smarter materials to improve the cost-weight curve. So everything that happens when we manufacture a wind turbine is about the ratio of the cost increase to the energy output. So you're always playing around with the edges of this. Oh, I could build it this much better, this much bigger, and it would work. And we might be able to get more energy, but then it's always, well, actually, that costs a little bit too much. So you're always playing with those two things. We got a much better understanding of the actual mechanical loads that allowed us to remove some of the over-design from the wind turbines. So when we first started out and we built these machines, we had to build in larger factors of safety because we weren't really 100% sure how they would respond. Now we have very good sensors and we can pick up real life data about how the turbines are responding and we can actually manipulate the way the turbines are working in real time depending on the stresses and strains and the heat etc that they're experiencing. And I guess the last one, which I touched on earlier, was the scale-up of the industry. So what's happened to the levelised cost of energy over that period of time? Well, it's dropped dramatically. So this is based on the assumption that we've got an 8 metre a second wind and we're holding all financing costs flat. I think that's a remarkable change from an industry which has made renewable energy the cheapest form of electricity we have available to us today. 
So, if I was to be building Chalicum Hills now, what would it look like? So in 2002, I needed 35 wind turbines to generate what I could do today with seven. This is a great graph that I found which pulled together information which has been produced by Bloomberg, CSIRO, etc., etc., looking at the levelised cost of energy and in Australia. And this is just supporting my case that we are now in a spot where solar and wind are the cheapest form of generation that we have available to us. And if we look at it from an international perspective, here we see the coloured zone through the middle. That is the cost of coal. And then you can see the blue dots, which are from um, the ARENA Levelised Cost of Energy database, and the orange, which are auction results from around the world. Again, it's telling exactly the same story, but you can really see it relative to that cost of thermal production. What's interesting to me is this concentrating solar power over here as well. We talk a lot about PV power in Australia, but not terribly much around concentrating solar power. So solar has taken very much the same walk as wind. Um, it's a little bit different in that for a wind farm, a wind turbine represents about 70% of the cost, maybe more, of a wind farm. On a solar farm, the panels themselves are a much smaller proportion of the cost of the solar farm. So panel prices for solar have dropped absolutely astronomically, but the total cost of a solar farm um, in Australia probably hasn't dropped to the same level because we have higher labour costs and higher balance of system costs in Australia. And as we heard earlier today, there's been an absolutely massive uptake of solar in Australia. When people tell you that they're not quite sure if Australians like renewable energy, well, I tell you they do, and they're willing to reach into their own pockets and pay for it. Six solar panels have gone up in Australia every minute. That is amazing this year. And one in five households have solar panels on their roof. This is creating a major change. And I love the idea that we're putting solar panels on our roofs. Because 
most of our demand is actually in our cities and a lot of our demand is coming from residential houses. So why not create the energy where those houses are? Why not use impervious surface that we already have to hold our large solar farms? Now, it's not controversial at all to say that renewable energy is the cheapest source of new energy that we have available to us. But we're at a point now where the cost of solar and wind is actually lower than the cost of feeding the furnaces on some of the thermal plant. This is going to create massive change to our market, and it already has. We're seeing major electricity suppliers and operators in Europe divesting of their coal assets, and that change is going to keep moving forward. It has its own momentum. It's going to be very difficult to stop. If you look at the OECD countries, two things have happened over the last 12 months. Demand has dropped. Now, demand is dropping for a number of reasons. One is the uptake of rooftop solar, and the other is that we're getting better at energy efficiency. And renewables have increased across the board. Coal is going down. And coal actually dropped at the same level as if you accumulated the demand from Germany, Spain and the UK in 2018. And all of this isn't happening too soon because as I discovered this morning when I went for a little run and I could taste the smoke at the back of my throat in Canberra, climate change is really being felt. There's no doubt that our Earth is heating up. And there's no doubt that our fire seasons are becoming longer. So how do we keep this going? What's next? Wind OEMs are continuing to invest in research. And their investment is higher now than it's ever been. They're expecting to be able to make even bigger turbines in the future and drop the levelised cost of energy further. We're seeing constant product innovations. So this year, Vestas brought out a 162-metre rotor machine. Um, and Siemens Gamesa brought out a 170-metre onshore rotor machine. 
we're expecting that the onshore machines that we put in will be seven to eight megawatts pretty quickly. So the turbines that we're looking at at the moment that we expect to be buying and putting on the ground in two years' time are that big. And we're moving more and more towards mass production of wind turbines. There's a huge demand for them internationally. So prices will continue to drop. We're also seeing different types of market drivers. Um, those who are optimistic about where power prices will go are looking for a different type of wind turbine than those who are pessimistic. So if you think that you're going to get high prices for energy in the next 10 years, then you want a turbine that you can run hard now and get the most amount of energy from. If you're optimistic that energy prices, and this depends on whose opinion you're looking at here, um, if you think energy prices are going to continue going higher, then you want a turbine which has a long design life and it will continue to produce energy for you over a long period. And in different markets around the world, as um, we have the event of more auctions, as we're seeing the way that we sell energy change, that changes the type of turbines that we have demand for. And what we're going to see in Australia is hopefully that the prices of electricity will fall. Now, personally, I think that they will fall further than what we're seeing on the top graph here over time. Um, the problem with these types of market analysis that are done is that it assumes that the market will behave rationally. And we're already not seeing that because the tools that we have for predicting how the energy market will change um, don't assume, for instance, that we're going to curtail one another. And we are. If you look at what's happening in Victoria at the moment, because the cost of new generation has dropped to such a point, new entrants can enter the market and assume that they will be curtailed and they can curtail off others around them. Um, there'll probably be a growing gap between the price that solar sees in the market and the price that wind sees in the market. Um, you might have heard about the duck curve that we get with solar because everybody's producing solar and selling it onto the market at the same time. Well, unless you have enough storage, then that creates a change. So wind not only has a lower levelised cost of energy, but the price of the power that wind sees is also higher because it's generating at a different time from when all of the solar is available. Now, we're at a point now where our electricity grid in Australia is pretty much full. 
When I sit there and I'm looking at somewhere else to put a new wind farm, it's very difficult to find a spot where I can put enough generation into the system that it makes sense. Unless I want to travel a little bit. And the good thing about the drop of the levelised cost of energy of wind is that we can, we can afford to go a little bit further and we can now afford to build more transmission asset to bring it into the system. Um, the Australian NEM is long and skinny. It's a very long way to get from Melbourne to Sydney, out to Brisbane and on. European markets are much stronger and denser than ours in Australia. So it's easy for them to have higher rene renewables penetration than it is in the Australian market. But we've got ways of fixing this. Um, we can introduce inertia. We can strengthen up the systems and we're busily looking at the moment at interconnectors between all of these sort of state-based systems which were designed to support thermal assets and tying them all together so that now we can transfer energy better around the NEM. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit now about some of the fantastic initiatives that are happening around Australia that will allow us to bring more renewables into the system. Um, I've got a few slides here that have been given to me by um, the guys in Tassie um, about Project Marinus, which is one of these interconnecting links. Um, Project Marinus will bring uh, wind and pumped hydro and hydro um, across into the Victorian network. Um, when you think about it, uh, in Tassie, they've already got a lot of hydro assets that are built. Um, they've got incredibly strong wind speeds. So they can support um, a bit more cost in an interconnector, it makes, it makes sense to be able to bring that energy across. This slide just shows um, the proposal there for that connecting in. Another change that we're going to see is the event of the mega project. And there are mega projects which have been proposed all over Australia. Um, the one I've got here in front of you is something which Andrew gave to me um, last week to talk about, which is the um, CWP's Asian Renewable Energy Hub, um, which is sort of a, another large remote project which will generate um, a lot of cheap renewable energy. There are a few more of these. There's an offshore wind farm or two which we're looking at down in the south of Australia. Um, and there, you would have all heard about the massive solar project which is up um, in the Northern Territory connecting across in to Singapore. The other thing that is going to change is the need for grid support services. 
And at the moment, individual projects are being required to put in grid support, whether it be synchronous condensers, batteries, etc., when they connect. Um, but that's not particularly good way of doing it. We can also have some centralised batteries and centralised pump storage to try and help us support the system. Um, this little table tries to give you an idea of um, the benefit that you get as you move across to pump storage and battery as opposed to using coal um, and thermal plant um, for the grid support services. Um, now, one of the brilliant projects um, which was actually announced that they're going to um, expand last week is the Hornsdale battery, which is 150 megawatts of battery in South Australia. Um, our Prime Minister referred to it as the, the big banana when it was put forward, or about it being about as useful as a big banana. Um, I thought it was quite funny that it made $22 million worth of profit in its first year of operation if it was a big banana. It's been quite successful. Um, this project is now expanding and it's going to be a more clever battery which allows them to um, support the system in a different way. Um, now, when I was putting these slides together, I also spoke with um, the Osnet guys and, and Mondo. And because I was curious to understand what they thought our system was going to be like. And it was a fantastic conversation because I didn't realise that they were preparing for a 100% renewable energy system. And that's what they're seeing as their vision as to where we're headed, which is great. Um, and they're seeing that as having 40 to 50% um, localised or embedded energy, which I think is also curious. So they're expecting our cities and our houses to be producing a lot of the energy as we go forward into the future. And our cities and governments around the world, or local governments, are planning for a renewable future. Um, there's a wonderful initiative, which is the Net Zero Carbon Cities. And they're using their planning schemes to change the way our buildings are designed to ensure that we are decarbonising our economies. If you look at that list of cities and you think that in not too many years, most of us will be living in cities and they've all pledged to have zero carbon buildings for new buildings and also to bring in um, changes that will make it so that our existing fleet of buildings 
are made more, um, I've lost the word now, um, <laughs> have better um, systems around them. Um, that is absolutely astronomical and I think that's a fantastic way for us to be going. I had a chat with um, Anji as well. And Anji were particularly interesting to me because they have signed up a um, zero or low carbon future program. And they've been looking to divest some of their coal assets in Europe. And when I had a chat with them, they said to me, Fleur, why don't you talk about a little project that we're doing up near Brisbane where we're looking at creating a new low carbon city. And I thought this was really interesting as well. So we've got these planning schemes for our big existing cities and we've also got some great planning going on around building new cities which are um, green and low carbon. Now, we've done a lot in the renewable energy sector to bring down costs and to be able to provide the lowest cost of energy. But we've done, haven't done some things too well. And one of the things that we haven't done very well is the battle for the hearts and minds. There's been an assumption that because we are doing something which is good, that we don't have to sell what we're doing. And that was a terrible assumption to make. Because on the other side, the thermal lobbies are using all of the wonderful things that they've discovered from the tobacco lobby group and from the gun lobby group. And they're talking to people and working out how they change people's perceptions. The idea that in the media, when the ABC talks about climate change or renewable energy, it has to have a sceptical voice there, is just ridiculous. So we as an industry, I think, have failed the PR war and we need to change that because there's still an awfully long way to go from where we are today to where we need to be in the future. So we're in a brilliant spot in Australia. We have an abundance of wind energy. We have a lot of space. So we can support, and we have a very good solar resource, so we can support a brilliant renewable energy system. Now, our costs are low enough that we can push this forward 
we can displace the coal-fired generation. We can produce energy at a cost which is low enough that it stops them firing up the furnaces. But we've hit a bit of a problem, which is our grid and how we actually can move the energy that we're generating and get it across to the consumers. And earlier today, we heard about the um, hydrogen transition. And that is a wonderful thing for us to work towards. So maybe if we have some mega projects, which have very big wind farms, that can cover the cost of building the transmission network. They will be more remote, which means that the high tip heights and the big turbines won't be too offensive to anybody to see. Um, we can have large solar farms. Um, in remote areas which are dry and flat and maybe not useful for any other form of cropping and they can cover the cost of the transmission. And if we have large battery systems like the ones that NeoN are putting in in South Australia and I forgot to mention earlier that they had not just that one, but I think they told me that they had two others of around the same size that they're planning to put in South Australia over the next few years as well. Putting all of these things together, I think that we can transition to a low carbon future. And I hope that you all feel that we can use our ingenuity to get there as well. Thanks, Flo, for a really informative talk. Um, I have a question about the rules that govern the grid. And I've been following a bit of a debate about what the AEMC is doing and the rules that, that govern how energy is transported. And I just wondered if you'd like to comment. Not really. <laughs> okay. Well, are the can I rephrase the question and say, are the rules they're proposing some people suggest designed to put a break on, um, well, the adoption of renewables. Mm. Um, sometimes it does feel like the rules are being forced upon us to stop us from succeeding. And um, the industry has put forward 
its thoughts around those. Should I take this off? <laughs> Do you want me to take this off? Yeah. Should I turn that one? It's sometimes it does feel like um, everything is against us. And I think this is um, a good example of that. I don't want to go into detail about it tonight because it's, it's quite a detailed question. Um, but maybe we can have a chat about it a bit more afterwards. But um, yes, it is very difficult for us. And there are quite a few things that we would like to have changed as an industry. Other questions? Well, I have a question, and that is a logistical one. Yeah. How on earth do you get a 200-metre broker diameter blade on land from a port to a place where a wind farm is? So, um, moving these blades is actually really difficult. We have special trucks for moving them. Um, and they have what they call steerable rear dollies, which means that the truck driver themselves can actually steer both the front wheel of their trailer and the back wheel of their trailer. The trailers move up and down. Um, I've worked on projects in the UK where we've been bringing these turbines down and we've had um, stone walls on either side of the road and those roads are only wide enough for a car. And what the truck drivers can do is actually steer all these different wheels and lift the top of the blade up and swing it around the corner. And it is absolutely amazing where they can get them. The other thing that is changing, and the GE turbine is a good example of this, is that we're now splitting the blades. So the back in, um, you might have noticed this in some of those photos of Chalicum Hills. Um, the Chalicum Hills turbines had a split blade because back in that era, we actually used the tip of the blade to help um, break the machine. It would spin around and that would help us stop the turbine um, and keep it still in high wind. Um, now, they're using a, a different type of um, technology, but they're using a split blade again with these new GE onshore um, blades, which are very long, which allows us to manage that issue a little bit better. So, another question? Yeah. I'll, I'll just make a comment from everything I've heard. It seems to me... Technologically, we can be 100% renewable in a few decades, but the problems are political. We've got, we see the problem here in Australia, in the United States and so on. These people who still think coal is the future. I don't know if you can say any more or want to say any more. I know it's very sensitive. Thank you.
I grew up in Tasmania, in the northwest coast of Tasmania. And Tasmania had this terrible logging business. And it relied on cutting down old growth forest, which they didn't have to pay for, um, and chipping it and turning it into paper. And there was a big push to try and get rid of that old growth forest logging. And it didn't seem to matter how much we pushed and we said environmentally it was terrible, we weren't getting anywhere. But what actually happened was that we got to a point where economically it didn't make sense for them to log that old growth forest anymore. It didn't make sense for them to make paper in Tasmania out of that source and consumers didn't want to purchase it. Now, I'm wondering if we're getting to that same point with renewable energy. The levelised cost of renewables has dropped to such a point. It will keep dropping um, if we can get it into the system, which is the difficult bit. Um, and people are putting solar panels on their roof. We're taking the actions and I think that will drive the change in itself through economics. That's my hope. Okay, uh, we'll keep going with questions till 7.30, so we've got another 18 minutes. Um, yeah, uh, just a quick question. Do you think uh, the wind uh, turbine technology will be able to uh, filter into residential houses? Or is it going to be just too noisy or perhaps too expensive for the thought? Um, throughout Europe, um, they actually put large turbines into industrial locations. Um, a project that I worked on in the UK, we um, put wind turbines in to a wastewater treatment site in the middle of a town. Um, there was enough space around that which allowed us to put large wind into that location. I think we could do a lot more of that in Australia. There are plenty of areas around our city which are semi-industrial. Why not put a wind turbine in the middle of a roundabout, for instance? The issue with that with large wind is that it takes an awful lot of effort to get the planning permission to put these wind turbines in and maybe you're better off putting that effort into developing big wind farms than you are in um, placing them around. But I think that could be part of the solution that we have in Australia. Um, in Something that they also do in Europe is that they allow what they call wielding across the network, which is where you can generate your electricity in one spot and then use it somewhere else. And that's used by a lot of industry where they might be able to put some turbines in an industrial centre and then take it back out in their factory over here without having to actually sell it onto the market and then buy it back. Um, as far as small wind is concerned in a domestic location, um, there are wind turbines that have a ring around the outside of them, which don't make very much noise. Um, the noise 
from wind turbines is actually made by the blade cutting through the air. So having that ring around them makes them a lot quieter. Um, but the cost of energy that you get from one of those versus one of our big wind turbines, you would always go for a big wind turbine above that as an overall economic solution. Fleur. Yeah, I think that's on. Thanks very much for your talk. It's good to hear the good news. Um, I hesitate to disagree on one small point, uh, just on the public relations. I think the ABC did a, a review of Australia Talks and interviewed 50,000 people or so all around Australia in every electorate. And there was overwhelming support, I think. For Australians, as you said, love renewable energy. And it's about 75% of us love renewable energy. So I think we're actually doing okay. I think the failure has come at the political level um, from our federal politicians. And I think we had um, a, an admission of that from the Labor speaker this morning. But uh, I think what we've got is the majority of Australians want renewable energy. And it's now up to the people to, uh, I think, get our politicians to sit down and stop playing silly buggers and get on with the job of actually um, delivering what the people want. I agree with you that the majority of Australians love renewable energy and want renewable energy and want action around climate change. Yes. Um, in your presentation and today, there was very little... Um, focus on offshore relative to onshore wind in Australia. Can you comment on that, please? Yes. Um, offshore wind is more expensive than onshore wind, which is one of the reasons why I focused on onshore. Offshore wind is a great solution when you don't have very much land or when you don't have a good wind resource on that land. Um, depending on um, the wind resource that you have, then maybe it does make sense to have an offshore wind farm. Um, the economies of scale aren't quite, quite there yet, I don't think, for Australia. Um, maybe over the next couple of years we'll get there. Um, I was listening to what you were saying about how unfit for purpose the grid is at the moment. And I, and I started to think, well, if the production of energy, particularly green energy, is going to be so decentralised into the regions and houses are going to be producing and buildings are going to be producing their own energy, is the grid, as we go on really going to be that important? Is it an outmoded sort of idea as we move towards the future? I think that's a very interesting question and I was just chatting with Chloe actually about this in the break earlier. Should we be looking at our grid and making incremental changes to make it better? Or should we be saying, well, actually, this is what the electricity system is going to look like in 20 years' time. Let's develop a new grid and a new set of rules for AEMO and trickle it down from the perspective of what the best would look like as opposed to making um, decisions 
from changing what is there at the moment. Um, maybe we need to approach it from both directions. Um, the LCRE of solar has been coming down more rapidly than wind in recent times. I guess it's a question which I'm asking you is where do you see solar and wind on their cost curves, which will level off like coal has, but in the future do you see solar coming down faster than wind? LCRE, that is. The cost of solar panels and the LCOE of solar has dropped dramatically, you're right. Um, but in Australia we've also seen some issues with solar because of the risk that's involved with implementing a solar farm. Um, on, if you're looking at a wind farm, the wind turbines themselves make up 70% of the cost of that wind farm. And the power curve um, for the turbines is guaranteed. Um, the noise curve for the turbines is guaranteed and you have this availability um, agreement that goes on for maybe 25 years, depending on what you want, um, which says, well, okay, um, whenever the wind's there, the turbine's going to operate and you've got this power curve. So you can easily say um, what the outcomes of that wind farm are going to be. You've also got a EPC contract which is wrapped by a normally a large entity like an OEM. So you've got something that if it falls over, you can go back and say to someone, well, okay, stuff it up, fix it. Solar is different in that the solar panels themselves form quite a small part of the capex of the project. So the panel cost decreasing get to a point where the incremental change, so another 3% drop on the cost of that panel, isn't making such a huge change to the overall cost of the solar farm itself. Now, with the solar panels, you also have the solar panel supplier and then you have... And solar panels have become real commodities. Um, the suppliers of the solar panels are um, changing. Um, there's so little profit in the solar panel market that we're seeing a lot of the solar panel suppliers disappearing. Um, and then you've also got your inverters. So one of the problems we've got in the solar panel market at the moment, or solar farm market in Australia at the moment, is that there's been a change in the inverter manufacturers. Um, and some of the inverter manufacturers have left the Australian market because they think it's too risky. Um, the uh, problems with integrating into the grid and saying what these inverters will do when they integrate into the bid and into the grid and whether they will pass their R2 tests is becoming too problematic for some of those suppliers. So there's a lot of risk in that solar market and building a solar farm, I guess, that we, um, that we don't have on the wind side. I... I think that there still is um, major improvement to be had on solar. Um, there is a lot of improvement from learning and installing and um, 
I, I think even on the solar farms themselves, the the first 10 megawatts of solar farm, of solar panels that they put in um, will be a lot slower than maybe the last um, 200 that they put in. And they time all of this and they go through. So there's a lot of learning that will happen and maybe the cost will drop further. Uh, good afternoon or good evening. Sorry, over here. Um, just out of curiosity as someone who's worked in the development of renewable projects, would you consider the increased frequency of negative prices during the day to be a bit of a concern for solar developers? Or do you think that the cost curve, you're confident the cost curve will be able to stay low enough that even as those windows widen, they'll still be able to confidently recover their capital costs? When we model our solar farms and get uh, project finance for them, we actually build those negative prices in. Whether we're building enough in is another question. Um, and But uh, battery technology has moved a lot. And I was talking to someone uh, last week and they were telling me that they thought that they could firm uh, for not much over $10, which is astronomical so if maybe if we get there in the next uh, five years then that's a great solution okay well I think that's a very good and optimistic note to finish on I'd like to, um, to thank the staff of the Energy Change Institute who helped put all this together and in particular I'd like to thank our speaker Sir Yaxley, for a truly excellent talk thank you very much we hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.